Welcome, and thank you for tuning into the Graceland Church Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus and love our neighbor for the good of the city. Good morning again, everybody. It's great to have you here. Uh, if I don't know you yet, my name's Nathan. Honored to be our lead pastor. Andy Levine, thank you for leading us in worship today. Let's give him a hand. We appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thank you for getting up, even though all your blood told you to stay in bed. We appreciate that. <laughs> I'm glad all you guys are here safely. It's good to have you guys who are online. Happy Valentine's Day to everyone. We have a challenging text we're looking at today. It's actually not expected for a Valentine's Day type sermon, but I think actually really helpful. You'll see what I mean. You guys all remember that in March of last year, as we were just about to be forced to suspend in-person services because of coronavirus, one of my mentors said this to me, we are about to learn a lot. And in some ways, it's a free look at how our church would do if we were not able to gather anymore, which happens sometimes in persecuted areas, among other things. It wasn't just our church, of course, it was the whole world, and the whole church in the West had to figure out how to approach this. We saw some beautiful things happen in our church. We saw some people return to the faith because the force of everything online in such strong ways allowed some people to hear the gospel that had been away from it for a long time and responded, and God really touched and ministered to them in amazing ways. Our church cared for each other really well, which was amazing to see, just staying connected, serving each other. Our church really stepped up to serve our local area. There were also some opportunities globally. Uh, for instance, the, the human trafficking um, industry that we partner with Project Rescue to come against um, they do beautiful work all around the world. There were people, uh, particularly women and children, released in huge numbers from sex slavery uh, because the industry got shut down because of the pandemic in many ways. And we were able to come alongside and provide uh, a large amount of money along with some other churches to help these women and children get some quick trade school education, some housing, some food, and get set up for a number of months. But you know also there were other ways that our church and the church in America particularly did not do so well. Uh, the pressure of the pandemic and of politics led to tension and dissension. As a pastor, it was heartbreaking to watch a lot of the arguments that people were having online, sometimes even questioning others' Christianity over things like face masks and vaccines and political candidates. There was a dramatic rise in offended people. Uh, a lot of us were tempted to turn more inward and selfish. Um, there are some that we thought would always be faithful and longtime followers of Jesus that actually fell away and didn't just disconnect from the church, but got very disillusioned in their faith. And one of the stats about America is that about one out of five active church attender or even someone that's engaged in the life of church dropped off the map in 2020, not just to viewing online, but totally dropped off the map. After a few months into it, it became clear that we as pastors and as teachers and as churches need to do a better job preparing for pressure and then for what eventually will be persecution. We do know it's coming because Jesus told us it would. Things will, in some ways, become more challenging for followers of Christ and for the church. And that leads us into today's message. And it's a moment when Jesus had to speak very clearly and directly in order to prepare his disciples and also us as his disciples for persecution. It was not an easy message then, and it's not easier now. The, the title is Self-Denial, and then parenthetically, The Way of the Cross. This is part of a series we're doing, Studying the Life of Peter. And this is just part of what Peter and the disciples were taught in their time with Jesus. Turn to Mark 8, 
starting in verse 27. It'll also be on screen if you don't have your Bible or don't want to look on your phone. Picking up in verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? It was not clear at this point to everyone in the crowds or even to all of his disciples who Jesus actually was. He might have been a great man, might have been a prophet. But they replied to him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. So for some context, Elijah was a great Old Testament prophet who was dead. John the Baptist was a very influential teacher who had been beheaded by Herod. So apparently some of Jesus' followers in the crowd thought that Jesus was a great man who had maybe returned from the dead. They weren't necessarily seeing him as God's son, the Messiah, yet. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. By calling him the Christ, Peter was saying, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the promised anointed one, the son of God who's come to save mankind, the one who will provide freedom and deliverance, the answer to all the prophecies. Peter knew that Jesus was more than a prophet or a great man, but he was the one and only son of God. And then in verse 30, Jesus said something very surprising. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So he's talking to his disciples whose primary assignment in life would be to tell everyone about him to not tell everyone about him yet. So apparently it wasn't timing yet for people to understand who Jesus actually was. And this seems like it'd be a great, significant moment for Jesus to move into an inspirational teaching about their assignment. But instead he goes into a very challenging teaching starting in verse 31. He then began to teach them the son of man, that's the title Jesus used referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Now, on this side of history, we have understood scripture to some degree. We know Jesus ends up dying on a cross. He he rises from the dead. Whether you believe that or not, that's the biblical account. It's what I believe. And the cross is just part of the story, but to them, They're just following this person, Jesus. The cross in their culture was capital punishment, public execution, and would make absolutely no sense for Jesus to start talking about in this context. They would have been very confused by this. And Peter, as was his habit of speaking out before fully thinking, spoke up probably for what many of them were thinking. Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. So don't forget, Peter had just said to Jesus, you are the Christ. So he had just declared personally, I believe you are the son of the living God. You are the promised Messiah. And then in his next breath, he said, I rebuke you to the son of God. He probably didn't fully think that through. I think he was thinking, what in the world, Jesus? If you are the Christ, you cannot be killed Are you tired or sick or confused? Don't say stuff like that, Jesus. You're the son of God. You can't suffer and be tortured. You can't let yourself be killed. That's the wrong plan, Jesus. You have power to prevent that. Choose a different path. Suffering and death is not the answer. I would have thought stuff like that. Peter was demonstrating that there are people who think they know everything, including in their relationship with God. Of course, 
we've all run into this in life. You know, when I first, my wife and I, I say I, I almost said when I first started having kids, I, I didn't have much to do with the process. But when my wife and I started having children, we realized there are a lot of people out there without kids who love to give those with kids parenting advice. Have you noticed that? And we would just be like, what are you talking? You don't know what it's like. There are also people that don't have one healthy relationship in their life uh, that love to give relationship advice to everybody else. These are those that have opinions about everything, but sometimes perhaps don't know much of anything. I think Valentine's Day is a good time to remind us that in the church of the West, we really don't have a sufficient theology of singleness, meaning living life as a single person. Sometimes we kind of accidentally or maybe some on purpose project that marriage is some kind of the great goal when Jesus was single and lived the fullest human life imaginable. And sometimes uh, single folks have those that have been married 10, 20, 30, 40 years telling them everything to do. And those single people sometimes be like, what are you talking about? You don't know what it's like out there on the market right now. I try to really, when, like with, with young men and women or older men and women that are in our church that are single, I, I never would want to approach it with trying to give them advice because I don't have a clue. The sad part is sometimes we approach the living God, just like Peter was doing, by telling him, we think we have a better plan than you. It's a presumption. But the reality is we sometimes presume to have a better plan than the living God. I think Jesus could have looked at Peter or maybe this is what Peter thought he was gonna say. Thank you, Peter. I know I'm God and all that, but you're right. I made a mistake. Let me go back and apologize to the guys. Suffering, persecution, and dying was a bad idea. I'll come up with something else. (laughs) That is not what he said. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. I actually would have liked to tell some of those friends of mine that didn't have kids yet, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. Just wait. You'll learn these lessons. I couldn't do that. I was their pastor. (laughs) Jesus did it. I'm just trying to be like Jesus. (laughs) Why was Jesus so strong about this? Why would he publicly rebuke Peter like that and call him Satan. I mean, it just seems kind of harsh. I think partially it's because this was a really big deal. In a sense, Peter was trying to talk Jesus out of going to the cross. Peter didn't like God's plan because God's plan involved pain and suffering. Peter wanted a different, comfortable, easy plan. And we often have the exact same struggle. God's plan doesn't always make us comfortable. You don't always get what you want. You want the reward without paying the price sometimes. Sometimes we want the Christ without the cross. We want our plan, not his plan, because his plan is not always easy. And so a question I wanna challenge you with today is this. Do you have the mind of self or the mind of God? Your plan or his plan? I can identify with Peter's struggle. I have wrestled with God many times in my life about wondering why does it have to be this way, God? This does not seem like a good plan, God. I feel like I could come up with 10 better versions of this plan than you, God. Have you guys ever talked to the Lord like that? I have. I've certainly talked to him about things like that in my own life and things that I see happening in the world. Why in the world, God? But this question that Peter asked led to a defining moment for the disciples and for all followers of Jesus to come. And that's the key text we're looking at in verse 34. 
Then Jesus called the crowd to himself along with his, his disciples. And notice, it's like Jesus is first rebuking Peter among just the disciples, but then he calls the whole crowd in as if to say, this is now the moment for me to ta- start to teach all of my potential followers what this is really about. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Again, take up his cross would have been a confusing phrase for the crowd. We somewhat glorify crosses in our culture. We have one in our sanctuary right here because we have a sense of what that means to us. But it would be like a modern day electric chair or something like that. It'd be like putting an electric chair right here where the drums are. It's not um, comforting. It's not something that we would normally want to like wear around a necklace. And I'm not saying it's bad that we do that, but I'm trying to put ourselves a little bit in their context to understand Uh, This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a great teacher, said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus invites you to deny yourself and follow him. We talk about following Jesus all the time. It's the first two words of the whole mission. Everything that the Lord calls us to is to follow him. And yes to the gospel. Let Let me say this. We need to understand the gospel of Jesus so that we can understand what it is to take up our cross and deny ourselves. None of taking up our cross and denying ourselves is to earn this salvation. It is all a response to this incredible love of the living God that he lavishes on us. So the gospel is the great exchange. He takes all of the mess of our life, gives us his righteousness. He, it is the great exchange. We thank God. We, Heather read it in the scripture earlier. Salvation is the gift of God. It cannot be earned so that no one can boast. So make no mistake, we're not talking about denying yourself enough to be saved. We're not talking about taking up your cross enough to be saved. We're talking about when you are saved, the call to discipleship oftentimes costs us something. And we're not doing ourselves a service when we just kind of coddle people in their faith. We need to prepare our church, our kids, anyone that we love for the reality that there is cost to following Jesus. And the reason this is a wonderful Valentine's Day message, happy Valentine's Day, are you feeling the romantic love right now? <laughs> it's like the, is because you realize to make relationships work, any relationship, what do you have to learn to do? Deny yourself and love someone. What is it to actually love someone? The missionary we had last week said it, it is to lay your life down for them. To deny yourself is to reject the natural human inclination toward selfishness. So as disciples of Jesus, we are fundamentally saying, Jesus, our lives now orient around you and your plan, not around me and my plan. That is much easier said than done. We need to daily remind ourselves of that and that that's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And to clarify, this does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that everything you desire for yourself is bad. God gives us good, wonderful, beautiful gifts because he created this whole world for us to enjoy. He created relationships for us to enjoy. He wants us to flourish. But as you know, our lives don't always feel like they are just flourishing. Sometimes we must go through suffering. Sometimes we will be persecuted. So it is very much both and. Life is a gift to be enjoyed, but we actually get to that joy by rejecting selfishness, not indulging it. That's why it's such a counter-cultural message. 
There's a fantastic book uh, that I would recommend by Larry Crabb, uh, and the title is A Different Kind of Happiness. And it talked about the happiness of Jesus being tied to the joy of others. So it's not this self-consumed happiness. It's the happiness of what will happen based on our obedience to the Lord. It's actually an invitation to life. It's an others-focused life. So how do we actually practice this self-denial and this way of the cross? Part of it is how we love and esteem our brothers and sisters in Christ. Self-denial is the basis for Christian fellowship and service within the church. Just in a room like this, even on a Sunday where it's icy and there's not a lot of people here, there are a thousand differences represented just in this room and disagreements and things you guys would, uh, you would have sharp edges that hit up against each other and that happens. But Christian fellowship works because you lay down yourself and your rights for the sake of loving another. That's why in such a polarized time as such, it's the time that the church should shine even brighter because among every differences, because all the differences that someone might list, the church can still walk united because our allegiance is to Jesus Christ, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. It's such a difference. May we shine brighter in the midst of a culture that is more and more divided. Philippians lays it out well for us. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So listen, when you are willing to sacrifice time, energy, or rights, which by the way, I know in America, uh, American culture, some of it has been built upon clinging to our inalienable rights. Well, let's just clarify. We as Christians are called to do the exact opposite, lay down our rights. Yes, we cling to rights as children of God, sons, daughters of the living God, walk in the fullness of God. But when it comes to like culture and relationships and, and what we're gonna fight over, we lay down our rights. We are, in that sense, we are counter-American the kingdom of God. The, the, the more you need to cling to your rights, the more you demonstrate you are concerned with project self and not necessarily project others and project kingdom of God. It is never worth you clinging to a right to the detriment of someone's relationship with God, ever. Scripture's clear on it. It's a, it's a hard word sometimes, but we, it's a really good moment for us to remember we are, we are thankful to be Americans. We're thankful for our country. Probably the, the, the best system of government probably that we've ever had in history still though very, very flawed and we're working through all kinds of things. At the same time, we are not disciples of America. We are not disciples of a political party. We are not disciples of the constitution. Forget it. We are disciples of the king of kings, the living God, the word of God. And we must really get that straight in a moment like this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, his own rights, but to the interests of others. The idea is becoming about others. When uh, my wife and I were first married, I realized how selfish I still was. You know, marriage has a way of revealing yourself to you. Just like 
seasons of culture like we have right now, the pandemic didn't as much, um, and everything in 2020 didn't as much cause the stress or anxiety that some of us have felt, it more reveals what's actually in there. It's a revealer. Just like marriage is a revealer of what's in there. And, and Jessica would say, man, I, I, marriage is teaching me to, to, to not live a selfish life. And then when you add a bunch of kids on that, she would say, now, now marriage and family is teaching me, I need to actually be completely selfless. Like there, there was more in there still just clinging to all my own things. Now I need to be selfless. And a, a friend of mine who adopted three kids at one time I think they were two, five, and eight at the time, something like that. They all had different dads, but they all had the same prostitute mother. And uh, my friend and his wife, who were in their 40s, adopted these three kids all at once. It was a, a big miracle that they were able to do it. They were financial miracles, all these things. Um, and they were celebrating it. And then they got the kids dropped off at their house. And he said, one hour later, him and his wife looked at each other and basically just said, oh my goodness, what did we sign up for here? Like the reality set in that love is actually about self-denial. And to love these precious kids that they adopted, they were gonna have to follow the way of the cross to get through. So that was about 15 years ago. And um, they've been in heaven and hell loving those kids, in all honesty, because of how hurt those kids were coming into their home and what the trauma they've had to lead them through and counseling and all kinds of crazy things that I won't even share here because it's too graphic. Love is denying of self. And it's just important to sometimes make sure we are also preaching some of these things that Jesus actually said. Sometimes we don't preach these a lot because they're not good church growth methods. They are not really good for PR. The only thing that I think Jesus said that was worse for PR than this was when he said, if you wanna be my follower, you must drink my blood and eat my flesh. You know, I, even I read that now and I'm like, why'd you have to say it like that, Jesus? Couldn't you just explain it a little bit more? We're not like actually drinking your blood. We're remembering or what does it mean to each Like, Lord, but again, me arguing my plan versus God's plan. Like in, in, in the church of the West, every, you know, I grew up going to church planning training and then I became a trainer for church planners, like conferences. It's all about church growth, church growth. Jesus seemed to be quite interested in doing the exact opposite. Like it really seems like he was trying to get rid of people by saying difficult things. But what we learn in life is we say the most difficult things to the ones we love the most. Like if you think about, if you have kids, you do not want to coddle your children about what they're gonna face in life. Why? Because you love them. You want them to last. You want them to make it. So the Lord loves us. So he's willing to give us the reality in scripture like this. You heard Tim Decker last week, some of you, who is our guest missionary. Go listen to it if you missed it. Um, and just a quick reminder, if you're online or anything, don't type his name online. That's the one thing we have to do to kind of protect him and his identity because uh, he's in a sensitive country. But his whole thesis was just the gospel and it was that to love is to lay down your life, which him and his family are doing for the people that God has called them to love and serve the Somali people. And this is the gospel. It's what Jesus did for us. And by the way, I'm happy to report, we took an offering for Tim and his family last week. And uh, you guys gave so far just about $5,000. And it's gonna come up over 5,000 because people are still giving. And you can still give to it. Just put Africa in the memo. They sent us though a little thank you video and also a way that we can hear updates from them. Take a look. 
Hello, Graceland family. Uh, I'm Susanna Decker, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your incredible, generous gift to us. That generosity has put us into a partnership now for the kingdom of God. And on our part, we love to steward that partnership by giving you updates on what God is doing. And so if you are interested at all in getting those updates, we send emails out. You can visit wearethedeckers.com slash subscribe, or you can just text it to us, 612-234-2341. Just send us your name and email. And we just love for you to know how God is using our combined resources to accomplish his purposes there in Africa. Thank you guys again so much. Grace, peace to you all. In verse 35, uh, Jesus goes on to further explain, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. You are invited to lose your life in the wonder of following Jesus. This is the only way, according to Jesus, to save your life. Now, I don't know about you, but in the interest of full candor, I know for sure, I spend a lot of time, even to this day, trying to figure out how to save my own life and get it to work, right? We, we, that's kind of like how we're taught, figure out how to get everything in your life to work and everything in your future so you can be completely secure and basically so you don't need God. And it's tempting to do that. And we're in such a prosperous nation that sometimes we can convince ourselves that we really don't need at all this living God that we're told about. Jesus is telling us, if you only are trying to save your life, you will actually lose it. And I think that is evidenced in our culture. It's evidenced by seeing the results of living life just that way, you can actually lose your life. The way to find it is to lose it. (laughs) This beautiful counterintuitive kingdom. I would say the same goes for our church. Our goal at Graceland Church is to not make Graceland Church the big awesome thing, It's Graceland Church loses its life and makes much of Jesus so that we can find what he has called us to be. Very different approach. It's not about us. I have a huge heart for church unity. Like we are part of the one church in the area. I've been really building relationships with other pastors. Just this morning, I was texting a bunch of them as everyone was trying to decide what to do about the ice. About half the church is canceled and about half the churches didn't. And we just, you land where you land. But we are a part of one church. At best, I'm just a co-elder with brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all under shepherds of the one pastor and shepherd of our church, Jesus. And he has called us to unity in the body, not to try to make much of us. We lose our life to find it. What a a thing that we are invited into from the Lord. So stop clinging. Stop stop fighting. Stop, Stop trying to set it all up for yourself. Find the joy of losing it all. The same guy who adopted those kids had a phrase that I loved because he used to be kind of a, 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 a bigwig in the news world and, and in production and all that. And he says, now I used to be somebody, now I'm happy. I love that. Because he knows what it is to strive and push and he knows what it is to find huge success and he knows what it is to find it empty. And he knows what it is that when you find it to feel the need to continue it and you're trapped, you're stuck. But when you lose it all, when you let it all go, you find it. It's also that, that uh, great audio adrenaline lyric. Anybody remember audio adrenaline? Let's see. Who are the Christian kids in the house? Yes. Um, this is the good life. I lost everything. Everything I could dream of. This is the good life. It's, it's, is that what it's called? Someone help me. It's on the album Underdog. Go check it out. Beautiful counterintuitive kingdom. We, come on. Where are my audio? YouTube? Come on. Yes, please. Don't be ashamed. We'll have an altar call at the end. It's Okay. 
Actually, when I was having coffee once, we remember that singer came and sat right down next to us in that little neighborhood. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, what's that singer's name? Mark Stewart. Mark Stewart comes over and sits down. I almost had to go get his autograph from Audio Journal, but I couldn't be that guy. Jesus then further explains in verse 36, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? The question to ask ourselves around this is what aren't you willing to lay down to follow Jesus? Or perhaps what aren't you willing to lay down for your own soul? What in your life, if God asks for it, is off limits? Or what in your life, think of it this way, if you literally were told by God if you don't lay this down, you will lose your soul. Is there anything in that category? They're like, no, I just can't lay that down. This is a moment today for you to do that kind of inner surgery and lay it down before the Lord. It's one thing to say we acknowledge and we appreciate you, Jesus, but it's another thing to actually be a follower. The call is not to be appreciators. It's to be actual followers. And if the message couldn't get harder, Jesus ends it with this. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. The message expounds on it a little bit and says, if any of you are embarrassed over me and the way I'm leading you, when you get around your fickle and unfocused friends, know that you'll be an even greater embarrassment to the son of man when he arrives in all the splendor of God, his father, with an army of the holy angels. We all know what it is to sometimes be one person at church or with brothers and sisters in Christ and then someone totally different at home or totally different at work or totally different at school. I first started running into this as a middle school student, probably listening to Audio, audio Adrenaline. Actually, it was DC Talk because one of my friends said, what is that dumb Christian talk? Is that what DC stands for? And I was like, no, and you really hurt me. <laughs> Actually, that's not what I said. I just cried internally and went home and started being embarrassed for being a Christian. And eventually I came across this verse because I was a pastor's kid. I wasn't really walking with the Lord yet, but I called myself a Christian and I had, I had you know, been baptized and put my faith in Jesus, all that. So I was wrestling with this passage. God, I don't want you to be embarrassed of me, but I really do feel embarrassed when I'm out with my friends and, I, and this comes up. And sometimes in, a, in, a, in an area like Middle Tennessee where there really is a Christian subculture, we forget there's a cost to naming the name of Jesus. People when, that we were pastoring in Los Angeles understood it more because sometimes if you name the name of Jesus, you lose the gig in the movie, it's over. If you name the name of Jesus, you cannot be the director of this one, it's over. Sometimes here it's a little bit of the opposite still because of this confusing Christian subculture we have. And it's, it's it, you know, sometimes people that don't name the name of Jesus can be punished here. And it's helpful for us to remember this bubble that we're in is not necessarily real world. We need to take a cue from the global church and understand your faith will cost you. And if we don't preach that to our own selves, we will not last. When things get hard at all, we'll be like, God, I'm out. When it's, not, when it's no longer big prosperity, God, I'm out. When it costs me a relationship, when it costs me a job, when it costs me whatever it might be. So, you know, we have people losing their families all over the world because they're following Jesus. We have people losing entire career paths because they're following Jesus. So this is not a downer. Again, happy Valentine's Day. This is the message of love because it's truth. And Jesus teaches us this. The lesson that Peter learned is to follow Jesus is to practice self-denial and the way of the cross. The way we're gonna close is with communion. It's the best way to close. It's important for us to remember what we're 
what we're preaching first to ourselves is the gospel. If you don't have one and you'd like to partake with us, go ahead and raise your hand and uh, one of our team members will bring you one. There's some up here. Jim, could you grab the basket and bring those around maybe? Thank you. No one is pressured to partake, but if you like, it's an, it's an open table. It's for those who are declaring themselves as followers of Jesus. It's a way to respond. There are two things I want to encourage you to pray as we take this communion. The first is just remembering the gospel. And this is what it is. This is amazing. Say this, I am an unfinished person resting in the finished work of Christ. What a gift that is. Again, don't confuse this or get this twisted. You are not earning salvation through self-denial. You are not earning salvation through the carrying of your cross. That is a response to the salvation that he invites us into. So you are very imperfect, as am I. You are very unfinished, as am I. All the unfinished people nod your head at me. We're so unfinished, but we can rest right now in the finished work of Jesus. And the second prayer I wanna encourage you to pray is also on screen. Lord, reveal if there is anything in my life that has a higher priority than you. Reveal that to me, Lord, and I'm praying that for myself. Reveal to me the areas, Lord, where you've called me to deny myself. Teach me what it is to follow the way of the cross. Teach us what it is as a church to make much of you and less of us. And uh, that, that is our response to this great love that you've lavished upon us. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, we thank you for this bread that represents your body broken for us. Thank you that you're broken so that we can be whole. We have hearts overflowing with gratitude as we remember today and as we eat. Let's eat, church. I forgot to mention, if you're at home, We'd love for you to take communion with us. You don't need to use grape juice or a special cracker. You can use water and a goldfish, or you can use orange juice and a saltine, whatever you want. Um, It's not about the specific item. It's about what it represents. So feel free to grab that and participate with us. I would encourage you to do that. In verse 25, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, we thank you for your blood that was shed in our place. We thank you for your forgiveness that is complete and total and that we have right now as we put our faith in you. And church or anyone online, if you're watching or here and and you're not a father of Jesus, you can pray it right now. Lord, I, I want to follow you. I ask for forgiveness of my sins. Teach me your ways. I commit my whole life to you. I don't understand all this, but I ask for your help. Teach me what it is to walk in this flourishing and actual true life that you have invited us into. In Jesus' name, thank you, Jesus, for your blood that was shed to us as we drink, shed for us. And as we drink today, we remember. Let's drink, church. The beautiful thing about studying the life of Peter and seeing the arc of someone's life is 
You might feel like Peter did when he walked on the water and then he started sinking and had to cry out for Savior. You might be in a sinking moment right now. Or you might feel like the biggest failure in the world after Peter denied Jesus three times and just felt like he was totally disqualified and done. That might be you right now. You might feel like you need restoration right before Peter was restored by Christ. You might feel totally high on life right now and be like Peter when he preached the first sermon and 3,000 people got saved after the day, on the day of Pentecost. You might feel like Peter after he got restored by Jesus and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm invited back into this. And here's what's awesome. Every one of those moments, the full spectrum of the human condition that is broken as we endeavor to know this Jesus, in every one of those moments, we can say the simple line of that song, I'm gonna follow Jesus. In the middle of failure, it's about his faithfulness, not mine. In the middle of the greatest moments, it's about his glory, not mine. In the middle of the restoration, God, thank you for your mercy and grace. So the, the thing I love about this kind of message, though it doesn't, it's not a lot of hooting and hollering, it doesn't, it's not a lot of warm fuzzies, but it sets us up for success. It sets us up for the long haul. It sets us up to last. It doesn't really matter how we begin. It matters how we end. Lord, may we be a church that helps people be lifelong followers of Jesus. That when the cost gets great, we jump in even more. And persecution will come. Sometimes persecution is God's answer to our prayer for revival. Because when there is persecution, when the cost becomes higher, it's when the true church sees spiritual awakening. It's true all throughout history. It's true in scripture. So whatever's coming in our own country might be the direct result of our prayer for spiritual awakening. Doesn't mean we stop praying for godliness in our country. We do. We pray for our leaders. We pray for the government and all of that. But it's a whole different thing that we're a part of. It's a whole different, wonderful, I think of it as the great river of God. Step in and get swept away. Lose your life in the river of God. So I'm gonna pray this benediction and we'll be dismissed. Eternal God, Heavenly Father, you have graciously accepted us as living members of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you have fed us with spiritual food in the sacrament of his body and blood. Send us now into the world in peace and grant us strength and courage to love and serve you with gladness and singleness of heart. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.